You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. And I have to say, I'm pretty impressed. This is not a bad crowd at all for spring break week and spring forward weekend. Look at all of you folks with one hour less of sleep and one cup more of coffee. I sure, I'm sure, right? Lifeblood that drives the dreams of champions, coffee is. It's a little Mike Ditka for you this morning. All right, if you have your copy of God's Word, your Bible, or your ESV uh, journal, including the Gospel of Luke, containing the Gospel of Luke, grab that, and let's go to Luke 16. Luke 16 this morning. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. There are stacks of Bibles on those tables in the back of the room. Take one. That's our gift to you. You can grab one now. You can grab one on your way out of worship today. Just start reading that Bible and see what happens in your life in the days and the months ahead. I'm going to invite you to stand, if you're willing and able, in honor of the reading of God's Word this morning. The text on which today's teaching is based is Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. At the end of the reading, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and I invite you to respond, thanks be to God. Listen carefully to these words from Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham! Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now, now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man argued, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. In our study of Luke's gospel that we've titled The Once and Future King, and we've been in this study for quite a while now, and lately in this study we've been looking at examples of Jesus' teaching, his parables. Jesus was a master communicator. He taught almost entirely pictorially. He taught in parables, stories. But of course parables are more than simply stories. They're expanded analogies. They're stories with intent 
When Jesus tells these parables, he intends for us to change our attitudes and our behaviors. Remember that the parables are fictitious. Jesus invents these characters to instruct us. You might recall that pithy definition of parables that I gave you many weeks ago. Parables are imaginary gardens with real toads in them. Now thus far, we've looked at four of Jesus' parables. We've walked through four of these gardens together. Let me just remind you of what they are. We've studied the parable of the four soils in Luke 8. The parable of the great Samaritan in Luke 10. The parable of the poor fool in Luke 12. And then last Sunday, the parable of the lost boys in Luke 15. And last week, as we studied the parable of the lost boys, I said to you that that was probably, probably Jesus' Jesus's most famous parable. And certainly one of his lengthiest parables. Now we have one final parable to consider in this series. And though it's not the lengthiest or the most famous, it's certainly the strangest. It's the strangest parable by far. Only in this parable is a character given a name. Think about it. We never learned the name of the farmer in the parable of the four soils. We never learned the name of the Samaritan. We never learned the name of the, the rich man in Luke 12. We never learned the name of the lost boys. Only in this parable is one of the characters named. Why? Keep listening and you'll find out. But there's something about this parable that makes it even more unique. In all the other parables, Jesus has used examples from everyday life. Traveling, farming, family feuds, the stuff of everyday life. In this parable, he takes us into the afterlife. This is a parable about traveling, but this time we're traveling beyond the grave. We've studied a parable about a rich man in life. That was Luke 12. This is a parable about a rich man in life and after death. If you came to our Ash Wednesday service, you'll remember we talked a lot about death. And today we'll be talking about the parable of the dead men. It's healthy, I think, for us to consider the reality of death. We are inescapably mortal. Ash Wednesday in the Lenten season leading up to Easter reminds us of this. It reminds us of our creatureliness, our finitude. We are inescapably mortal. We are all dying. Humans throughout time, throughout history, all over the world have, have tried to convince themselves that we're, we're immortal. Tried to find ways to defeat or at least postpone death. Stories have been written. Films have been made. Great works of literature. Oscar Wilde's The, uh, the Picture of Dorian Gray is a classic example of this. He never ages as long as his portrait ages in his place. What's it all about? Trying to defeat death. Trying to postpone death. Today, Jesus, in love, causes us to think about death. And we need to do that. Because we live in an age where not only do we not want to think about death, but we have tried to convince ourselves that death is not going to really come for us. Surely not us. Or at least not yet. We do everything we can to persuade ourselves that death is not really going to come for us. 
Todd Billings, in his book, The End of the Christian Life, he shares these numbers. In the 1940s, almost all Americans died in their own homes. By the 1980s, only 17% died at home. Today, we've hidden the dying in hospitals and nursing homes, removing the very odor of death from the air we breathe, so desperately attempting to convince ourselves that death doesn't know where we live. Today in love, Jesus is going to make us face the reality of death. And he does so by telling us this parable. A parable of two men who lived, two men who died. This parable can be divided into three distinct parts. First, a contrast of lives. These two men lived very differently. Second, a contrast of afterlives. What happens to them after death? And then third and finally, a conversation about the living. And here we'll learn the lessons that Jesus is trying to teach us in this very parable. So first, a contrast of lives. Verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So we have our two characters here. The first one is a rich man. And we're given three descriptions, three further descriptions of this rich man. We're told what he wore clothed in purple. We're told how he ate, and we're told something about where he lived. Look at each one of them. He wore purple and fine linen. Now this tells us that he was the richest of the rich. Linen, purple, these were very rare. No one hardly had, <coughs> hardly had access to purple clothing because it was made of a dye that came from marine snails. Incredibly hard to get. He is among the richest of the rich. This is royalty. This is ostentatious wealth. Secondly, we're told how he ate. He feasted sumptuously every day. This is a man who gorged himself, like the people who lived in the capital in the Hunger Games, gorging themselves while people are starving to death nearby. He had everything he could have ever wanted and far, far more. And third, we're told something about where he lived. Verse 20, at his gate was laid a poor man. At his gate, this man lives behind a gate, presumably in a mansion. The gate is an important detail in this story. The gate separates this man who on one side lived so luxuriously from Lazarus on the other side who lived miserably. It was a gate that could have been opened to help Lazarus. But it wasn't. And that's the second character, Lazarus. And we're told three things about him. We're told something about his affliction, something about the attention he got, and the attention he didn't. Look first at his affliction. At the rich man's gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. Now it's interesting, this verb was laid, was laid at the gate. It's the same verb that means to be thrown down. 
It gives us the picture that Lazarus more than likely was a cripple. He was a man who was unable to get from place to place on his own. Someone had thrown him down at the rich man's gate and there he was. That conclusion is confirmed by this fact that the dogs came and licked his sores. Lazarus can't even defend himself against these wild animals. Dogs in these days were not pets. There were no pet stores. People didn't go and buy their dog and bring it home. These were wild animals that roamed the streets. Scavengers that ate rubbish, sometimes even feasted on corpses. So what's the attention that Lazarus gets? Who sees him? Who comes to his side? No one but the dogs. They come and they lick his sores. It's a revolting image. That's the attention he got. And what about the attention he didn't? Well, it was the rich man. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. And Lazarus desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. He's desperate. He's starving to death. He simply wants the food that falls from this man's table. Now the, the food that falls from his table, this is not crumbs that fall by accident. No, no. In these days, the rich dined... And they used as napkins large pieces of bread. And they would take the bread at the end of the meal and they would wipe the remaining food from their hands and they would throw the bread under the table. And then a servant would later take those pieces of bread and dispose of them, take them out with the trash. Lazarus simply wants to eat from the rich man's rubbish. That's how desperate he is. And the rich man completely ignores him completely ignores him. So we have these two men who are living in very, very different ways. The rich man and Lazarus. Now remember in the introduction I told you, this is the only parable where one of the characters has a name. Lazarus. It's interesting, isn't it, that the rich man is not the one who's named. Now surely everyone would have known the rich man. This was a man of power, of resources, of clout. Everyone in the city would have known this man who lived behind the gate in this great mansion. In fact, they probably would have wanted his name. They would have wanted his autograph. They would have killed to have something with his name written on it. But in Jesus' telling of the story, he's nameless. He's anonymous. He's of no consequence. And it's the poor man, Lazarus who has a name. Lazarus is known. God knows Lazarus. God will help Lazarus. In fact, the name Lazarus means God helps. The rich man doesn't see him. The rich man will not help him. But God will. God will. Now before we go into the second part of this parable, we need to think back to a theme that we have seen earlier in Luke's gospel, though we haven't addressed it for a while, so we need to dust it off in our thinking. It's the theme of the great reversal. The great reversal. We last talked about this when we looked at Jesus' first sermon recorded in Luke chapter 6, the Beatitudes. I want to read the passage one more time just to bring this to the forefront of our thinking. This is from Jesus' sermon in Luke 6, the Beatitudes. He says, Blessed are you who are poor, 
For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets, but woe... Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And what is Jesus doing here? He's comparing two types of people. The first thing he does is he issues these beatitudes, a statement of happiness or a pronouncement of blessing. Blessed are you who are poor, and so on. And then he gives us these woes, words of warning. But woe to you who are rich, etc. Now at first glance, it might look like Jesus is comparing lots of different types of people, but really there are only two types of people in view here in the Beatitudes, just as there are only two people in our parable in Luke 16. The two types of people, first, the one who is blessed, and second, the one who is warned. And we're given multiple descriptions of each to make sure we get the point. The one who is blessed is poor now. Hungry now, hurting now, persecuted now. The one Jesus warns is rich now, full now, laughing now, popular now. So what is the common theme here? The one who is blessed is the one who is needy. Needy. Don't you see it? Needs. Provision, support, needs, food, needs someone to ease their pain, needs a community of love. The one who is blessed is needy and he or she knows it. The one who is warned needs nothing or so they think. So they think. Their hands are full of money now. Their homes are full of Laughter and friends and followers now. They have everything they need, so they think. But Jesus shows us that one day there will be a great reversal of these fortunes. That one day the person who comes to him as a beggar will be treated like a king. And the one who comes to him as a king, saying, I already have everything I need, that one will be treated like a beggar. A great reversal of fortunes will come. That's the point Jesus teaches about in Luke 6. And it's the very point he illustrates vividly in Luke 16. The parable we're studying today. So back to it now. Part 2 of the parable is a contrast of afterlives. These two men, the rich man and Lazarus, lived very differently as they walk the earth, what about after death? Jesus takes us there. He shows us. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. 
And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Notice how quickly death comes in this story. With no warning, with no explanation, how did these men die? What happened? We don't know. It's how death often comes. You're not expecting it. We're simply told the poor man died. And he, he was carried by the angels. Now on earth, judging by the silence of the text, on earth he didn't even get a proper burial. Didn't have the money for it. He simply disappeared and was forgotten. The rich man, on the contrary, he was buried. It was probably an elaborate and expensive one. But that was the last good thing that happened to the rich man. After death, there is that great reversal that Jesus talked about. The poor man dies and he's carried by the angels to Abraham's side, an image of heaven. He's given a royal escort to the best seat at the banquet. Lazarus, who never was invited to a banquet on earth, is escorted by God's own angels into the heavenly place, the place of celebration. But the rich man, on the other hand, he dies and he's buried. And in Hades, the realm of the dead, being in torment, he lifts up his eyes and he can see. He can see Abraham. He can see Lazarus. Now notice the reversal here. Remember the gate earlier? Remember Lazarus being thrown down at the gate, looking up to the rich man who never stopped, who never helped? Now, in quite the turn of events, the rich man is down and he's looking up at Lazarus. And he knows he needs help. So here's what he does. He cries out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. It's funny, this rich man on earth, he was a man of clout, power, resources, right? He was a man who got the job done, who did not take no for an answer, and he's the same way in the afterlife. He thinks Lazarus will be his lackey, his servant. Send Lazarus to get me some water to cool the anguish, to end my suffering. But notice, send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water. Probably some intentional irony here. Just a few drops of water. That's what he's asking from Lazarus when before on earth it was just a few crumbs from the rich man's table that Lazarus wanted. And he was given nothing. But the response he gets from Abraham makes it very clear that there will be no end to the suffering. There will be no change of events. There will be no aid that will come to him. Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now, in eternity... He is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. 
Now, as an aside, just for a moment here. Remember that the parables are fictitious. Imaginary gardens with real toads in them. It's doubtful that Jesus wants us to construct from this middle portion of the parable to construct a geography of heaven and hell. It's doubtful. This is probably not a literal description. This is more of a stop sign than a map. It's a warning signal. It's not a travel brochure of the afterlife. In other words, I don't know that we should conclude from this parable that we will be able to speak across the great chasm and see across it. That could be a fictitious detail designed to emphasize the finality of judgment. That's the point Jesus is making here. The finality of the judgment. The great chasm means Lazarus is here celebrating. The rich man is in Hades and there will be no change. The reversal of fortunes has happened. And that is irreversible. This chasm is unbridgeable. For the rich man, it's too late. It's too late. Now why is he condemned in this way? The parable leaves it a little bit... I don't know. It doesn't make it as explicit as we might like. And maybe that makes us a little nervous. Why is the rich man condemned in this way? New Testament scholar Daryl Bach says it really well, I think. Here's the point he makes. The rich man is not condemned because he is rich, but because he slipped into the coma of callousness that wealth often produces. He became consumed with his own joy, leisure, and celebration and failed to respond to the suffering and need of others around him. It's not that the man was rich. It was the coma of callousness. It's that he loved money. He didn't love God with his money. He loved money. He served money. He was greedy. He accumulated everything he could for himself. He lived comfortably, luxuriously behind his gate. And remember that gate that separated him from Lazarus and life? Now the chasm separates him from Lazarus in the afterlife. The great reversal. Jesus is not saying that there's a problem with being wealthy. But he is saying there is an incredibly dangerous problem with loving our wealth. With being greedy. With refusing to use our resources for God's work in the world. The parable ends with a conversation. We've seen the contrast of lives, the contrast of afterlives. Now a conversation about those who are still living. It's too late for the rich man. It's too late. But is it too late for his family? That's where it goes in closing. Verse 27, the rich man said, Then Abraham, I beg you to send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. 
And finally, the rich man learns that there's no hope for him. The judgment is final. And now for the first time, he thinks about someone else. He shows concern for someone else. He's concerned about his brothers because they're just like him. They don't love God with their money. They love money. And so he asks, could Lazarus please be sent to visit my brothers? If Lazarus goes, if he warns them, they will listen. They will turn from their ways. They will turn from my way. It's a deadly way. I see it now. If only someone will go and help my brothers. But Abraham responds, they have Moses and they have the prophets. Let them hear them. The rich man continues to argue, No, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, if they see a miracle, then they will repent. And Abraham says, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In essence, Abraham says, They have God's word. God has spoken on this matter clearly, frequently. Let them hear and respond. And then, just as we would expect from the other parables, it rather abruptly ends. That's it. And, and we're left with this feeling of, that's it? That's it, Jesus? That's the end of the story? What happened to the brothers? We know that they never received the visit from Lazarus. But did they ever hear and respond to God's word? Maybe. Maybe not. The real question is how will you and I respond to God's word today? As we did last Sunday, I want us to close with a few implications for belief and practice here. Just two of them today. And I want us to see these images in this story and draw some implications from them. The two images are the chasm and the gate. The chasm and the gate. The chasm teaches us that death, unless Lord Jesus returns, death is inescapable. And one's fate in the afterlife, irreversible. Irreversible. It was too late for the rich man. He had his good things on earth. He lived a self-indulgent life. He rejected God. He went his own way. And so God said to him, so be it. So be it into eternity. Friends, there will come a time when for you it will be too late. So what are you waiting for? Look to Jesus with faith now. Believe in Him. Love Him. Serve Him. Follow Him. Death, according to this parable, is inescapable and one's fate in the afterlife, irreversible. There's a second image. You saw it. The gate. The gate calls us to see the opportunities for ministry that are all around us. And then use our wealth 
to do God's work. See the Lazarus at your gate. This parable is not about ending world hunger. This parable is about one man who the rich man knew by name who was sitting at his doorstep and he didn't help him. This is a parable about local engagement, one of Faith Church's own core values. Through us, the gospel changes our community. It's about doing something for the people here who are in need. So how do we show? How do we show that we're not like the rich man and therefore not destined to share his fate? How do we demonstrate that our hearts have been transformed by the gospel? See Lazarus and help him. I'll give you three practical ways you can do that and then we're done. Here's three of them. First, give to the ministry budget at Faith Church. I called all of us as gospel partners to do this a few weeks ago. If you haven't been giving, did you start? This is an opportunity for all of us together to make a difference in our local community. Giving to the ministry budget here in your home church, in your local community. Tons of Lazarus-like people that we can minister to together. So that's one. Second, get involved in Faith Cafe to go. Do you know about Faith Cafe to go, the ministry we have here at our church? Every single week, we provide food for approximately 150 needy individuals in our community every single week. That's a lot of Lazarus-like people. We need more supplies. We need more packers. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Here's the third one. The first Sunday in May, when we have our first Sunday fellowship, we're going to have what we call the Great Bike Giveaway. Another one of our ministries at Faith Church is called Cycles for Christ. Some of the men in our church find and refurbish bicycles. And then we take those bicycles and give them to children and families in our community. The first Sunday in May, at the first Sunday fellowship, we're going to have a bunch of those bicycles out there and ready. And if you have someone in your neighborhood, someone in your family, someone in your life that you feel like could use a new bike, take one of those bikes and hand deliver it to them. We're making it as easy as we can for you. The bike will be ready to go to a new home. All you got to do is find someone and take it to them. Just another tangible way for us to express the love of Jesus. To do something to help the Lazarus that is at your gate and mine. Lazarus is there. What are you going to do, Faith Church? What are you going to do? Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father, we thank you for this, your word. This parable today, it's a tough one. It takes us into some strange and probably uncomfortable territory in more ways than one. It teaches us about the finality of judgment. It calls each one of us to search our own hearts. Have we truly been transformed by the power of the gospel? One of the ways we can know that we have 
is by showing mercy and being generous to others. By realizing that all good gifts come from you, God. That if you have blessed us, you have done so, so that we can be a blessing to others. So this morning, where we need to be convicted, convict us. Where we need to be challenged, challenge us. And where we need to be comforted and encouraged, comfort and encourage our hearts. God, we know that it is only when we have truly experienced your generosity in the gospel that we will come to be generous. So I pray that hearts are changed by that gospel today as we now move into a time of celebrating that wonderful news. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.